0: Thank you for coming here today it's me Linda Sage on learning from life one thing I can promise you there'll be people to meet over the airways here you'll never forget some as long as you live let's just say most have had what could be termed as an interest in life it's not what happens it's how you deal with it and one line from any of them could change the way you deal with things forever there be landing from all parts of the planet, all ages, backgrounds and experiences. Telling the truth of how it was and how they manage things may just help you miss a rock or two along your road too. Hi and welcome back. This is Learning for Life and I'm Linda Sage and of course I always have amazing guests this time is no different in fact we have such a special guest with us today and uh, one of the subjects that comes up an awful lot in especially this time is about COVID and the mental health of patients and people in your family, but what happens to the people that look after you at this time? So the doctors and the nurses, but especially the the doctors and consultants, looking after them is a big, big area that an awful lot of people are not looking at very clearly. So that is our topic for today. And my very, very learned guest is Professor Haytan Patel. So thank you so much for joining me.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you
0: Linda for having me. Right you, you've got so many different titles behind your name so we've got Professor of Urology, Consultant uh, Urological Surgeon and Consultant Urologist. <laughs> that, that's quite quite a, a, a bank be, uh, that you've been doing. I,
1: I've, I've kept myself busy all these years.
0: <laughs> you, you've obviously been around within the medical profession quite a long time.
1: I have yes so I um, qualified in the early 90s and went to medical school in the eighties. So I'm a sixties child, if that helps.
0: <laughs> so we've come an awful long way within in that time of medicine. And you know, obviously the thought of mental health is a lot more open now than perhaps in, in previous uh, decades, but it's still something that's a little bit of a taboo. And especially like when people get into tops of their profession, because it seems quite hard for anybody to talk about it. That's right. I think the um, it's, it's a very important subject now, and people. I
1: think we've been made more aware of it. I think it's always been important, um, but lots more people talk about it now. But I think my generation, I'm currently in my early fifties, but I think uh, if you take people in their sixties, in uh, my my decade as well, um, I think in our generation it was it was no real easy way of managing it. Just uh, particularly surgeons. Um, I think being a surgeon, there are some aspects to being a surgeon um, that it often used to look like a weakness if you spoke to somebody and said, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling particularly well today. I'm a little bit anxious about something. You just can't talk about these things or, or there's a perception you couldn't talk about these things. Um, but things are changing now, th- luckily, and, and thank God, actually, they are changing.
0: Just on that note, I mean, with the the change, the more openness about mental health, but also we've come into an era of um, like suing or looking at at demands. So does that make it even more difficult for a a surgeon or consultant to actually speak to somebody else for fear of anybody picking this information up?
1: Linda, you're, you're, it's a very important question you just asked me. Uh, um, this area about medical negligence and expert witnesses— ha- one of the important areas here is um, mistakes can occur. We're all human, uh, but it's it's uh, the level of mistake, and that's what the lawyers get involved with, and the, and obviously the, the policemen for the for the doctors are called the General Medical Council to look how fit we are to practice so negligence is a really really important area and when doctors go through this process often they're innocent actually they've done nothing wrong but there's been something's happened to a patient and the families ask the questions you know or even the patient you know why has this happened to my my loved one and nine out of ten times there's a sensible an appropriate answer which is acceptable to both the patient and the, and the doctor, but sometimes it gets a bit heated and it can be quite vexatious, uh, people can get very upset and they can be very emotional. So there's, there's this thing called the second victim uh, which was coined by a surgeon in Harvard nearly, well, was nearly 15 years ago now uh, and they talked about the, the first victim being the patient and of course, we are patient centric. We, we are carers. We, we care about what we do. We we want every patient to do well. But sometimes it, that just doesn't happen. And when suing occurs and negligence or possible negligence occurs, nobody's actually thinking about the second victim, which is the, the doctor. And in my case, the surgeon. Mm-hmm. And in fact, those surgeons we know went through a horrendous time, even very people who have really not made a mistake and they've been exonerated later down the line. But to the point where recently, you know, people have committed suicide just by being accused of some form of negligence because there's no support structure in the hospital uh, or outside. So going on about people feel they've got to talk about it, but are the actual support structures in place? Do we facilitate people on a regular basis? The answer is no. So I'll give you an example, in, if I may. Yes, great. Um, if you take a cancer nurse that looks after cancer patients, and if you go to any cancer centre, these nurses who look after cancer patients, they have a very, very difficult job. They're talking to people, giving people bad news all the time. And yet, you know, when it comes to when they go home, they've got to take all this, you know, terrible news home with them. Mm-hmm. It's, I call it the emotional baggage. I'm sure you've yes. got a more professional word for it but that baggage they take home they can't offload it so easily and so it leads to things like having the extra glass of wine taking out on a loved one suddenly things can become not good and so what happened with nursing is that cancer nurses regularly have facilitation um, episodes where they can talk to fellow professionals people like yourself Linda who are experts Mm -hmm. in psychology psychotherapy um, who can actually help them, you know, um, clear the the emotional baggage to avoid the nurse getting unwell, you know, and, and having behavioural issues, etc., all the, all the negative things that go with it. Yeah. And in fact, the, that doesn't happen with the doctors that look after cancer patients. So the oncologists, who are my colleagues, who, who give chemotherapy and radiotherapy, for example, And the surgeons like myself, who are are oncologists, uh, do surgical treatments, Mm -hmm. no consultants actually have formal facilitation, you know, and debriefing around dealing with difficult patients, which they deal with all the time. It's an accepted, oh, you are a consultant, you will just manage. And I think that needs to change. And I think the Royal College of Surgeons are now beginning to broach this subject online but but they haven't they don't have any teeth to tell hospitals to say look you must fit in this into a weekly timetable for doctors looking after patients
0: mm-hmm. well, very much so because at the end of the day each human being i mean deals with loss differently and for one person, because I speak a lot, a lot about uh, secondary traumatic stress, which is uh, something uh, similar to what you were talking about. But if one person is in an accident or one person has cancer, they they deal with that and they think it's a huge thing. But th- this doctor or the surgeon can see five, six, seven, ten 10 people in a day and they're dealing with each of those traumas as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. The, um... I think you, you, the most famous story recently is the Patterson story, where the surgeon uh, was jailed for having what we call the God complex. Uh, you know, it's, he maimed and ruined many, many women's lives, and it was mm-hmm. a very high-profile case in the news. Now, when you start digging into that surgeon's background, he was exhibiting all the behaviours of, of, of which ultimately led to him behaving independently of his colleagues and independently of national guidelines and how you manage these patients. So he became an isolated individual. But those, if he was under having facilitation on a regular basis, this would have been picked up early. He would have been given appropriate coping strategies to manage it. Mm -hmm. And he may still have done it. We can't say he wouldn't have done it, but it's less likely he would have damaged all those women. No. So from that perspective, if we're talking about looking after patients, if you look after the carer, then, and I think we should look after surgeons and doctors in this way, as we do with nurses now, I think we have a much better workforce looking after our patients.
0: I, th- I think, yeah, as you say, that uh, there's a lot of people that slip through the net because of their, their status, because of their standing, and also because as you've gone through from medical school and you know, registrar and then gone up through the, the ranks. This has been built into it as part of it, not to ask for help, not to be seen as needing support.
1: Absolutely right. So um, if you take a simple story of, of a child growing up, if that child is given certain a way they live by, so for example, being kind to people around them, you know, acknowledging other humans by saying good morning, hello, how are you? Just simple basic things that we think are basic caveats for living in a good community. If we apply the same principle to students in medicine coming through the ranks, well, I can tell you um, communication skills had just got onto the curriculum when I was a medical student in the 80s, had just got on. Wow. So before that, before before 1986... There was no communication skills module, so how do you talk to people was not on the medical students' uh, radar for for learning and teaching. Fast forward to now. Uh, Things around working in a team structure, uh, multidisciplinary, communicating about patients as a group, that's now standard of care with doctors. Is it being taught in medical schools? Yes, it is. Uh, so it's very patient centric case centric in terms of how you work with patients but still how are you feeling as a as a carer that is still on the fringes we are still it's still not mainstream but i think nowadays because younger sort of medical students and younger doctors they now have a a much more structured way that they learn with mm-hmm. patients they're not left to, to their own devices anymore they have to work with direct supervision you know with a, with a, either a, another doctor or a consultant yeah so medical students are directly supervised they they meet the consultants regularly for mm-hmm. updates and facilitation but if they've got a problem it's who do they go and speak to well that that's that reporting structure oh that consultant was bullying me or that I had a terrible time with that patient or that nurse was giving me a hard time or I'm just having a difficult time that reporting structure is now much better Um, sourced within a medical school at undergraduate level. Mm -hmm. It still is not brilliant once you're postgraduate, once you've qualified. So as a young doctor the pressures are different now to what they were before. They're still under a lot of pressure, it's just different pressure to what we had when we were younger. And I think the support structure is slightly better in in that there there is a way of them reporting to senior doctors to say, I'm having a hard time in this post, I'm not learning what I should be learning, uh, et cetera. There's a a curriculum they need to follow, but it still doesn't quite deal with their mental health. And it's only when you see people on a ward round or when you're having a cup of tea with them in the hospital, you realize there's something wrong. Um, Often you don't because you're so busy running around yourself, you miss it. So there there still is not this... We can still always do better, and I think we need to do better for our young doctors but I do feel very strongly that our senior colleagues, people in my group, have no way, no easy way of meeting or talking to somebody about how they are feeling in particular. And I think that, that has a, will have a massive knock-on effect on the care given to patients. I think that's, we need to be able to have a, a much more open conversation about, a facilitation conversation about how you're feeling And what's going on in your life? You know, people are having loads of life events all the time. Divorce, substance abuse. You know, they've had a bad day with the children, uh, friends. You know, it could be someone at work. It could be bullying, you know. um, And then imagine if I'll give an example and if I may, if you imagine you're being bullied by your line manager, what do you do? Most doctors don't know what to do about that. It's amazing. Even though the hospitals say we have a reporting structure, you, you you go to HR, you go to someone more senior than your line manager. That's all. That's all. Somewhere on a website where you can, please read the small print, as they say. But no, it's not. It's not made so overtly or obvious, so you can you can actually you know tap into those things.
0: Yeah. And 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 also, I think you know the amount of hours that doctors are being asked to work and the amount of non-clinical pressure as well that is is there in a daily job as well absolutely right so uh, we we you,
1: you touched on covid at the beginning of mm. while we we're introducing the, the the podcast and i think what covid has done uh, i mean it, it's we're still in the middle of it of course but yeah. what's happened because it is a national and international crisis. Uh, the first thought of all doctors is, 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 you know, manning the pump. So everyone's just run to try and help. But because of the nature of COVID, when you can't go back home and see your family, for example, when you can't have dinner with your loved ones, with your trusted people that you might meet regularly to, to manage your mental health, which is, you know, which is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The, you suddenly, there's suddenly this build-up, And then when you when think, when the pressure builds up, something breaks. And many of my colleagues who've contracted COVID, unfortunately some have even passed away uh, because they've gone in without, with not a, really a care for themselves. And the COVID has taken their lives, but many others, and here's the next big crisis, uh, are, are, are hanging on to all this extremely difficult, information about, they've seen people dying in front of them, which, you know, young people coming in. And I say young, I use the word loosely, Linda.
0: Yes.
1: I'm talking about people in their fifties like me. So the same age as yourself or yes. myself, you know, just healthy people just suddenly being taken away, passing away. And what happens to that individual doctor or nurse or healthcare provider, you know, after they see a death? Well, there's no proper facilitation for that. And I use the word facilitation. I mean, a debrief or a, some kind of counselling, as the second victim, you know, are you yes. okay? What's happening? You, you know, these things are all taken home. Um, so COVID has has highlighted some really really difficult things, but actually it's highlighted them. It hasn't. it's nothing new. And I think what a lot of quarters would like to say is that oh, COVID has caused these things. Well, it hasn't. COVID has just just highlighted what's already been going on for years and years. Mm-hmm. where these carers are not being taken care of themselves. And they eventually they break. And they break that's you know, in terms of they'll go to the GP and they'll have high blood pressure, they'll have diabetes, they'll have some other illness, you know, they'll they'll break down and suddenly a lot of surgeons who retire, for example, when the adrenaline drops, they they drop. Yeah, uh, you know, when they are suddenly retired. So there's so many things that are not managed during the, the doctor's life and the nurse's life which can be managed much better and that all involves I believe the first step is talking to somebody who you trust now you there's no point talking to somebody you trust if they don't have the skills to manage your mental health so I think it should be my opinion is and I think and it's a, and I think it's a now I would say it's a very learned opinion over the last year learned so much about this you need to talk to a trusted facilitator someone who's a professional who can manage you and manage what's going on with you and your mental health
0: and going on a little bit with that with covid do you see that sort of the anticipated effects of this are going to have a long-term mental health um, issues for uh, health care workers
1: absolutely the i mean it doesn't take a a a doctor to see, or or any profession for that matter, to see what's going to happen. So currently, you know, know, the Chancellor's talking about financial problems for the country and he'll address them. Uh, The health minister's talking about COVID and track and trace and all these sort of things related to the pandemic. But the biggest crisis that we are going to see is the disruption to our care services because the carers themselves are going to find it more and more difficult to manage what they're doing currently they're already at breaking point and there's a there is a mass exodus of people there has been for a while yeah but i think it's going to get a lot worse um, and you can't keep hiring people from around the world to plug the gaps and i think that's what's going to happen we're going to, we're going to have a staffing shortage, and it's going to be a staffing crisis um, into the future. I hope it won't happen, but there's a high risk of it happening if we don't deal with this whole area of mental health. So we have an opportunity and a window. It's it's still open, so I don't want to be a scaremonger. I think actually there is a solution. If we can get facilitators into place, if we can get these people to have regular events where they're able to talk about their mental health um, and maybe use a different word if mental health is something people can't stomach call it something else you know your well-being you know I think that's a good great thing to say about to somebody well let's talk about your well-being let's talk about you not the patient let's talk about your carer I think that will help us Linda to I strongly believe we can we can still avert the crisis if we are if we follow that pathway
0: and how for the next step of like with the doctors because you can put these things into place but getting them to want to use them and be being able to open up do you think that's something that actually needs work on from the bottom up as well
1: yes so if you say to a consultant surgeon who works 5 days a week so that's 10 sessions each session is accounted for mm-hmm. one session is for doing paperwork five sessions of looking at patients whether you're in a clinic or operating on them etc one of those sessions which is 4 hours long within that session one of those 4 hours can be for a facilitation episode and if it's part of your timetable just like continuous professional development is part of your timetable is compulsory just like seeing a patient is compulsory well seeing somebody to ask you about your well-being should also be compulsory. And I think if we make it compulsory, not, not a uh, you can or cannot, it must be part of your regular quarterly routine. So every three months there should be a, a one-hour session with somebody Linda, like, like yourself, a psychotherapist, psychologist, a professional who can manage that environment. And if you need more than one session that should be highlighted and then that can be timetabled into your roster. That makes for a, a happier doctor and if you're a happier doctor or a happier nurse you will provide much better care for your patients. There's less risk of damage to the patient or negligence. The workforce then is happier because you're interacting with your colleagues on a much better level. You therefore are health economically improving your hospital's output, so therefore financially it's good for everybody. So it's win, 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 win.
0: I think that's a fantastic uh, way of of actually getting it into the timetable. As you say, if if it's part of something that you would do on a normal basis, like see your your clients or talk to other doctors or be in uh, surgery, it it just makes it just part of the everyday life.
1: Yeah, there's there's an added thing to that, is that with with the doctors, we have an appraisal every year And you have to meet another doctor and get interviewed and you have to pass the appraisal every year to to continue practicing as a doctor. As part of that appraisal process, there is a question in there saying, how is your health? And you say, oh, it's great, tick, move on. It should actually be, how is your health? Please attach your yearly facilitation hours that you have with your hospital facilitators. For well-being
0: yeah just, just yeah just like that you have to account for your cpd hours correct exactly the same and i think we're
1: going that way now it's then it's then transparent uh it's easy to manage because everyone knows this has to happen so it's going to happen and once you know it's just part of your weekly routine most people just drop into line and people who because of the because of their civil liberties they can say well listen i don't want the hospital knowing about my very complex mental health issues because it might affect mm-hmm. my ability for getting a pension or getting life insurance or getting X Y and Z well okay there are always going to be things like that that go on um, but well-being is about improving your health related to your patients so if you want to be if you want to work in a hospital the contract should say as part of the contract you'll be asked to meet with a well-being expert on a quarterly basis. It should be just contracted in like everything else. I think as a, I, I work in the as in a medical director capacity, CMO capacity for several different types of companies. And this is part of what we're trying to do with uh, various groups, It's just to improve the daily life of the carer, which then automatically improves the patient's life and journey.
0: I think there's a key one because you know, any medical professional that you speak to at any level, if you ask them what are the key points of well-being and you know, a good mental health, they can tell you all the points, but they don't actually put them into play for themselves.
1: That's because they're a carer and they're used to being the person being asked about how do, the patient asks the carer, mm-hmm. dear doctor, how do I look after myself with X, Y and Z? So caregivers, Find it difficult to receive care because it's not in their mindset. You see, until something breaks, you know, they have a heart attack, uh, you know, they have uncontrolled hypertension, you know, something something happens, something huge, is when they suddenly they receive care from one of their colleagues, whether it be a GP or a, or another doctor or a nurse. So they're not used to that, and that needs to change at medical school level. Um, it needs to be part of the curriculum at the undergraduate level where it's okay. It should be, yes, it's okay to ask, and this is how you should ask, and this is where you can ask, and this is what will happen when you ask. It should all be there from med school level.
0: Very much so, I think, yes. Uh, so speaking of uh, being your you know, your product of your product, and, and uh, you're very much into this, how how do you unwind and offload? Oh, well, well,
1: well today's a good example. Um, I try, and, I try and finish the morning work by 11 to 11.30. So instead of letting things linger on into lun- the lunch period, which is between 12 and two, and that's a luxury. I say between 12 and two, there might be a 20 minute slot between 12 and two to have lunch. But lunch is very much a switch the phone off. Uh, I, I, try, I, I don't have lunch meetings because you can't chew your food and talk And so it's, it's a terrible thing. Lunch meetings are the worst thing you can possibly do. So I try and avoid a lunch meeting at all costs. I try and finish the morning, try and finish the morning by 1130. Uh, but that then lingers on till 12, but take a 10 minute quiet break, maybe a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and just go out of the building, get out the chair. So literally stand up is the first thing to do. That's a break because we're usually sitting uh, and I I operate sitting as well. I'm a robotic surgeon. So I operate sitting. I see patients in the clinic sitting. So there's a lot of sitting. So whenever you get the opportunity to stand, that immediately improves the oxygenation of your body. That's a physical thing. Uh, Fixing the time to say, I'm going to stop what I'm doing, the intense, intense work that you do with patients, whether it's in the operating room, whether it's in the clinic, whether it's doing some admin, it's all very intense, whether it's academia, whatever it might, it doesn't matter what the task is, generally it's, you give 110% towards the task. So have that break at the end of that task, just for even five minutes, just breathe. You know, I don't like to give breathing a fancy name, but you can give any fancy names you want. You can call it Pranayam, which is yoga breathing. You can talk about Tai Chi. It doesn't really matter. As long as you breathe, that's a great way of just bringing your Bring everything calming your whole system down, then um, the walk is always very good. so if you can just get out of the building, even if you walk up and down a corridor in a hospital, that's better than sitting in your in your room you know trying to muddle through a whole load of admin at lunchtime while you're eating a sandwich. So definitely do one task at a time If you're having a sandwich, have the sandwich. so be aware of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And if you do that, for me anyway, I think that's helped to just protect me from breaking because it's easy for any of us to break. You know, we, if we allow, yeah. allow adrenaline to just be pumped into our body 24 hours a day, we're all gonna break. So you have gotta bring down the adrenaline. So by being mindful of what you're doing as you're eating, avoiding your phone when you're eating, it's good, taking a 10 minute break after you've been sitting down in a clinic, just walking, just switch off, that's great. Don't just, your phone is a terrible instrument while you're having a break look at your phone while you're in a session of work that's that's another um, tip that i would give and that's why um uh you said something at the beginning i have many many hats and i do and we say give people who are busy a job to do because they get it done well i juggle several balls at the same time it's not always easy but as long as i take my breaks and protect myself i'm always strong enough to manage the multiple tasks that i then accept And that's why I'm enjoying the diversity of my work.
0: It's, you know, it's fantastic points that you've given and about getting into this is so important because people sort of put it off and put it off and then all of a sudden it gets harder to actually do. So learning to get into a good uh, sort of system of looking after yourself early on is really important.
1: If, If you can, and if you can't, because some people just aren't seeing it. Mm. It needs to be part of a process that we as teachers, as I'm part of a university, for example, we as the kind of writers of the rules, if you like. I used to be a person that had to, I mean, I follow the rules, but now I'm part of the group that make the rules. So we have a duty to put this into a stepwise program from when people are very young now I can't affect school life because I'm not in school, but I can affect university life, and that's where it should start for me as a university person. And I should help students with this from the beginning. But secondary schools now of pastoral care, you know, um, people there. That it should be part of that curriculum also. So it should be a seamless thing between um, community sort of schooling right through to if you go to university, if you don't go to university, you go from school to work, it should be seamless into your workplace. It should be part of the routine of all workplaces, not just, you know, hospitals. So I feel it should be part of our society. Society as a group has to drive this from when people are very young.
0: I know we've talked mainly about being here in the UK, but I know that you work a lot also globally. So this seems to be a, an issue that's not just UK-based.
1: Absolutely. So I'm very fortunate that I I get to work in many countries in the world. Um, I so if I give you some examples, um, let's talk about uh, Norway, for example. The, Norway is a not is a is a low populous country, um, and very wealthy because they've got natural resources. However, they're a very socialist country, so they're very, um, there's, a, there's a lot of equanimity in Norway with people, whether you're a cab driver or whether you're a, a surgeon in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's a very, very fair and balanced society. Um, when I talk to people about why Norway is like that, When you talk to Norwegians, you get one answer. And when you talk to people who look in, looking from the outside in, you get a different answer. So the people looking from the outside in are, Oh, well everything that nor the reason Norway is what it is is because they've got lots of money, lots of resource. That's why. But in fact, Norway give a lot of money to other countries. They give money to Poland. They give money, you know, they're not asking for it back. They're helping other societies around them. So they believe in community, it's within their DNA of their government, of their laws of their of their fabric and, and so it's not just financial uh, it's also to do with um, uh, you know so the, the, the things around how they, whether they grow up. so in Norway, children go to school from age seven, not age five, wow. and they, they do that because they believe that the child is more mature age seven. Now, I'm not an expert in this. I, but I, what I can tell you is, is that these kids who've grown up into these adults that I work with have a wonderful sense of community. You know, They also have a wonderful sense of looking after themselves. They have a wonderful sense of engaging with nature and the environment. They look after their environment. They engage with the environment. They're out all the time. You know, they don't believe in sitting in the home. They believe in going out. They believe in embracing things around them in which it re, related, That's why I think their, their their health benefits and their mental health benefits. Now, another misnomer is, oh, it's very dark in Norway, so they get seasonal affective disorder, so they're all depressed and they all drink too much and smoke too much and all the rest of it. That's complete nonsense. That is, is not like that. In fact, but for, in fact, should be the argument, but for this, the darkness and the snow and all the hardships of the environment, but for that, they're actually... Amazingly good. Incredibly good. So there's one example of being community minded about yourself and about people around you. So if you're good and you help your local neighbor be good in terms of their health and the way they think and work and are, then that team-based approach, community-based approach has helped them tremendously to to, to you know to have better to, 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 you know, they, I mean, they have the stresses and strains like anywhere else. So they have a low volume of doctors in that country. So they're always struggling to get enough doctors to run their hospitals, enough nurses to come and care for their patients because they just don't have enough people. It's not because uh, people are falling off sick left, right, and center, you just don't have enough people. That's all. So they, people like me get hired in, you know, so I've gone in and I've helped a whole hospital group. Uh, but, but I only went in for to, uh, on a temporary basis, but I loved working with them so much that it's permanent now. You know, I go regularly because I love it so much, but mm-hmm. but, 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 I saw that environment thought, brilliant. The other place I go to is India and in India I go there purely on a charitable basis. Um, uh, I set up a charity there with my father and we, we've been running it for 20 years and we help people for di- in, a, in a different way. They just have no money, they have no food, they have no clothes. It's just a different environment. It's the opposite of Norway, but mm-hmm. but the amazing thing is that community spirited nature means people can support each other. So in India, people love telling you their problems. In fact, they're a bit, bit too much actually sometimes. <laughs> it's a bit, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no space, personal space. People are in your space. But that means you can't really fall off a cliff because somebody's always holding you. So I like that environment. You know, it's, it's, there's not much resource, but mm-hmm. people take care of each other, and I and it's amazing when people come to see me there. There's not one person. There's a whole family comes. You know, ten, fifteen people in the consulting room sometimes will walk in with the with the patient. And I've had one occasion in Brazil when I was operating in the in the forests in Manaus in the north, where the native. Uh, Brazilians, or what they call the native Indians, but actually the, the natives of, that, of the north of Brazil. Uh, one, The child was brought into this hospital in Boa Vista, and it's a great story because the child had appendicitis, but the family would not allow us to operate on the child uh, because they were from the deep forests without the whole family, the ancestors, all in the room. So I had an operating room full of native Indians in my operating room with the professor that I worked with and me and this little child, and we were operating with this family in the room. Now that type of community, that type of um, uh, cultural difference, okay, um, I I noticed whenever I I work in other countries I noticed this. But how does it help the carer, the individual, the doctor or the nurse? Well, in India for example people care about their carers so the doctor is revered and probably too much there's this God complex going on there, which I completely am opposed to. But they do care about the person, giving them the care. So the family will bring tea and food and things to look after the carer. So the nurses are well taken care of, for example, in India. Um, the doctors are as well. But that's open for abuse, of course, and uh, there's, a, there's a line there, right?
0: Mm-hmm. In
1: in, uh, in the deepest forests, you know, in Manaus in Brazil, um, these people don't have anything to give, but what they do is they, they send... They send culture, they send your prayer, they, they, they do some kind of ritual to protect the hands of the surgeon when they're operating on the child, for example. They, wow. they get their ancestors to help you. So, whatever you look at, however you want to look at this in the different examples I give you, it's still, there's a bottom line, there's a denominator, and that is the community spirit looking after all of us together as a group comes from um, I think going back to this issue about start when you're when your people are children, when they're young, make sure young people know they can they can ask for help. It becomes part of the fabric of your society. So whatever level you're at, however senior or junior you are in society, you know there is a portal for you to go and ask for help from a, somebody trusted and professional, and therefore you know it will be in confidence, which is always the worry. People don't want their what they want their business being given out to everybody else but they also want to know that they they're getting the right advice and not the wrong advice so there's no point going to speak to you know your mate down the road in the pub although that does help to a degree just talking about it but if they give you the wrong advice you know oh here have another pint of beer that'll just drown your sorrows we've heard that many times yeah which which is quite nice sometimes i guess but you can't do that every day you know because ultimately you'll ruin your, your liver you know which is what happens to many people alcohol something people turn to and
0: we know that's a problem and then that ends up giving you two problems because it's the problem you went with originally and then you have the problem with the alcohol as well well yes it is and i mean
1: the airline pilots you know as you know have been caught by this by the crew you know smelling of alcohol and they've Mm -hmm. been reported in a similar way surgeons and doctors and nurses if they come in you know after some kind of substance abuse whether it be alcohol you know drugs whatever it mm-hmm. might be that has a direct effect on the quality of care of the people we're caring for the patient yes and and, and we we have to remember the patient being affected has a devastating effect on the family mm-hmm. around them and you know where do you pick up the pieces and all that it's just it just it just it's just horrendous yeah. So one person's, one person's mistake as a carer can affect many, many, many lives um, simply because, simply by us not caring for the carer.
0: So it's a very big open subject and I do very much appreciate your time. I'm sure we could, we could talk for so long about this because uh, it's something that's so important to both of us. But uh, what's going on for the future? You've done so much, but there, uh, there must be still things that you want to do. Yes, there are. It's <laughs> what keeps you young, I guess. So so well I'm am well, very fortunate.
1: Um, I've had a I've had an incredible career to date and I've got to do all the things that I thought were very exciting and novel and cutting edge and innovative and all those all those words that go around creative thinking. And the next step is and that's where I'm one of the areas that I'm developing at a rapid rate is well how can you help more than one person? help themselves. So this whole world of digital health now uh, is, is, is coming, is, is speeded up, it's accelerated and the corona crisis has speeded up even more. Our health minister talks about it all the time, Matt Hancock, and um, digital health. And One of the amazing things about digital health, it's basically facilitating people taking care of themselves People measuring the problem they have and allowing people to access the correct thing they need. And some really good examples of digital health, okay, which are already here, okay, are things like um, the meditation app. You know, loads of people are using that meditation app to calm themselves down during the corona crisis, which is leading to improvements in their blood pressure, you know, lowering their adrenaline levels, the simple physiological things that you and I, Linda, would be interested in trying to measure to see if our interventions have helped, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Um, but right through to things like controlling your weight, there are, there are behavioral change, uh, digital health apps, which help people lower their weight, you know, and keep it off. You know, it's not just going on a diet and exercising. There's also a, a thing in the mind that needs to happen to change the way you behave and think. So that's happening. There's, there are now apps available that what they're called remote monitoring apps, which allow patients to monitor themselves on an app. Put, they put in their symptoms, and then that then gets loaded into a system with flagging, which the consultant in a hospital may see, or their deputy, or the GP, or their deputy, or a nurse. Somebody in the pathway of patient care and patient journeys can keep an eye on it, so it's called remote monitoring. That saves lots of money for the hospital. Mm -hmm. More importantly, that saves lots of time and money for the patient, it stops the patient having to go to the hospital for an outpatient appointment, that could save up to three hours a day, which means you could work instead of being in the hospital wasting time, potentially waiting to see a doctor for five minutes in the three hour cycle. So these are the things now which I'm helping to facilitate because of the experience I have in that world of medical technology and digital health. So that's where we're going with that. And um, the other part is making sure that I'm able to help. I'm also a facilitator for people who sometimes fall off the path and they're not quite sure how they've fallen off or what's happened. And they just need a bit of a a shimmy along and a a little bit of a, a boost and I, I, I keep myself very open to try and help people that way as well. And um, it's a great honour for me to allow people allow me to help them because sometimes it's very difficult to ask for help. Yes. Um, so I try and keep that. I'm not the I'm not the guy who goes oh yeah my doors open all the time when it's not my my phone my phone is always on I guess av- available and I hope affable in there's other word I use available and affable there we go.
0: I think they are great ones, and it's very true. You are you're you're always uh, you're always you're always there, which is, uh, is a wonderful thing, especially somebody you know of, of your career and your your status. It means you, anybody can have access to your knowledge and your ability. Whereas before, it seemed quite sort of a closed, you know, boys' club, really. It is. I mean,
1: the ethos is my ethos is knowledge. Is for sharing, and we are not educating people. People are learning. So if you share knowledge and they're learning, that's perfect. And and what's the point in having all this knowledge if you can't share it? Uh, and and you know and that's essentially how I've been since I was a young boy. And um, uh, I think I'm still a young boy, by the way, Linda.
0: <laughs> I don't think I'm
1: fifty-two. But um, uh, I I don't see myself ever retiring. I think uh, I think. Um, when I've passed away, when the lights are off, then I've got plenty of time to sleep and retire. At that point, until that moment, I, I will try and do my best to share this experience and knowledge with people in a very humble way. I, I definitely do not want to be, I, I, you know, I'm my first name is Hitten, and and that's how I introduce myself. I'm Hitten. And that's it.
0: It's wonderful to be speaking to you today as well. So thank you so so much for for being with us and. Uh, given us all your time and knowledge and uh, of course on the podcast people can go back and listen to it over and over again.
1: Well you're doing a great job Linda and I please continue your wonderful work uh, Thank and you. I hope um, uh, to be of some assistance to you helping all the people that you help as well. It's wonderful.
0: Thank you so much for that. But it helps being able to talk to people like yourself as well. So uh, perhaps we can continue this at another time. (laughs) Thank you, Linda. All
1: the best. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Peace peace to all your listeners. Take care.
0: And thank you so much for being with us. That has gone so quickly, as time always does. And don't forget, you can listen to this over and over again because there's hundreds of golden nuggets there to be taken away. So uh, please join us again next week. We will be back, same place, same time. For now, take care of yourself. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded in conjunction with the Chapel FM Art Centre and East Leeds FM radio station. For more information about them and all the good work that they do is www.elfm.co.uk. And to know more about what Linda Sage is doing, her website is www.elfm.co.uk lindasage.com also on all the other social medias